Let's pray together. Can we start off this time just uh, getting our hearts and minds ready to receive whatever the Lord has for us today as we're studying his word together. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and we need you. We need you. We're walking through some difficult days. Many people in this room are walking through some difficult moments. God, and we need you. Forgive us, God, when we don't look up. Forgive, forgive us, God, for looking down and looking around. Many times ignoring the very one who can help us. Help us, Lord, to seek you first, to seek your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that you'll take care of everything else around us, Lord, if we'll pursue you. I pray, God, that today as we're in your word, Lord, that you'd speak clearly, that your Holy Spirit would convict us, God, where we need convicting. Lord, that you'd confirm us and affirm us of our salvation in you, and God, that you'd restore our hope. I pray that our hope is in our future with you. God, inspire us today. Give us a vision for what is awaiting us that would fuel us and propel us into that trajectory that you have for us for our lives from this day forward, knowing full well, full well where the finish line is with you in eternity. Oh, God, give us a greater vision in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, and as you're turning there, just a couple things I want to tell you about. Remember, uh, next week we are baptizing, and I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people getting baptized uh, next Sunday. Um, if you're always like, man, I don't want to be the one getting baptized by myself, I promise you, you will have a crowd with you next week getting baptized if you want to join in. Uh, there's adults, teenagers, and children that will be baptized in both services next week, and so if you want to jump in and be a part of that, if you're ready to make your uh, faith public and make that profession public, you need to talk to me or one of the other pastors, and let's make sure we get you lined up to do that and be on that list to be baptized next week. And then also, next Sunday night, April the 30th, and the following few days up until May the 3rd, there's going to be revival services in Liberty at the old uh, Liberty High School football stadium. There with a, an evangelist named Rick Gage, he'll be leading it in the GoTel uh, revival services that are happening at the old Easley High School football stadium. And it's a tri-county event. There's people coming from Oconee, Pickens, Anderson counties, joining together and just seeking the Lord to see what he might do. There's also assembly, a series of assemblies that will be happening in some of the local schools as well. And so just be praying about that. Be a part of that. Go and make plans to be there. Maybe invite somebody to go with you because the gospel, I guarantee you the gospel will be clearly explained in those moments. And we're just praying for revival in our town and in our community. And that's in Liberty starting April the 30th. So as you know, uh, we're in the book of 1 Peter. And last week was kind of the introduction to this and really kind of understanding why Peter was writing this particular letter to these particular people in the first century of Christianity. It was a time of wholesale persecution and for many of them even individual hardship for them as believers and they would consider themselves under a, a very fiery trial and so as Christians here trying to make it immersed in a pagan culture Peter is writing to them and encouraging them uh, to, to be faithful to endure to the end because a glorious future awaits them and that is going to be the hope that we see in this passage today as we're starting in verse 9 of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Now, I don't know about you, but this past weekend was like an amazing weather weekend. I know we had a little bit of rain Saturday morning, but I had to be outside. Anybody else have to be outside some Friday or Saturday? Man, I got some grass cut. I got some bushes whacked. You know, like yesterday, though, it was so pretty. And I'm like, I'm going to get on the bicycle again. I haven't been on the bicycle in a few months uh, since the last warm snap. You know what I'm saying? So, been a few months. I'm going to go ride the doodle trail, all 17 miles of the doodle trail. So, 
uh, I, get on the, I get on my bike, and you know, I don't know if you've been on the Doodle Trail before, you're thinking, well, that's an old railroad line. You know, it doesn't have much of a steep pitch to it. Wrong. I mean, if you've ever been on it, you know, there's like big hills and big valleys, and it's funny because if you think about it, going from easily toward Pickens is like going toward the mountains, and so if you start in Pickens where I started, it's all downhill for like the first couple of miles. You're cruising along, you're barely having to use your pedals. Well, what you don't think about as you're going down that hill is eventually you've got to turn around and easily, and you've got to ride back up the mountain toward Pickens for those next eight miles. And so I'm there, and I'm chugging away. And again, I've, I've been trying to you know, do some things inside at the YMCA. It's not the same as getting on a bicycle, I can tell you that, because about mile, I don't know, 15 or so, and it's funny because we're on the doodle trail. They've got the little markers there. Every tenth of a mile, you can kind of track it. And I'm sitting there pedaling, oh, my goodness, i got three more miles to go. My, my throat gets dried. My mouth becomes a parched desert land. I am just needing a, something to drink, you know, and I'm pushing hard. My, my muscles are starting to ache, and I have this thing in my mind. Now, this thing in my mind is what I've actually brought up here on stage. I actually have it in my hand a lot of Sunday mornings. If you see me around the, the church office, I sometimes have this in my hand, like good old Uncle Si with the Robertsons. I've always got a big cup of lemonade. I had a chock full, ice cold cup of lemonade sitting in my truck waiting for me <laughs> waiting for me at the end of the doodle trail as I am pedaling away and all I can think about as I'm pedaling those last three miles is this beautiful cup of this orange tall Clemson cup of ice cold lemonade waiting for me I could see it I could taste it and those last few miles I just had lemonade on the brain and I I probably embarrassed myself as I rolled into the parking lot. There's kids in the playground and all the parents and stuff. And I throw the bike down and I'm looking for my keys and I'm getting there. And I just take that cup and I just turn that bad boy up. And I know I dribbled all the way down my shirt. <laughs> but I had it. That, re that relief of the moment. And that, that vision, if you will, okay, that, that thing in front of me propelled me forward because I knew something good was awaiting me. And as I, as I was preparing this message, and, and that happened yesterday, I was thinking, man, this is exactly what we should be like as we're facing the uphill battles of our life, knowing and understanding that, that God is with us now, but we also have something glorious waiting for us at the finish line of our lives. And that really should fuel us as we keep pedaling forward, if you will, toward our destination. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Now, we ended in verse 9 last week. We're going to start there again because I think it's this beautiful bookend, if you will, to what we're talking about today of really walking through what we got to walk through and having this vision for the future that fuels that. Verse 9 says, Peter writes, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is point number one. Salvation is a glorious promise. And what else? Listen, Wherever you find yourself in life, as we talked about last week, you might be in the middle of a difficult moment. If you're not in the middle of a difficult moment, it's a guarantee you are, in, you are a human being on this broken, in this broken world. There is, there's hardship, there's difficulty ahead of you if you're not in that place now. It's just a lull between difficult moments at this moment. And so as you are understanding that, you need to understand that there is something awaiting for you. As we're told here in verse 9 again, there is an end result of our faith. There is something to look forward to. There is a culmination of all the things that we have to walk through at this moment, and that is the salvation of our souls, this beautiful promise of salvation that we have from God. And what does it mean to be saved in your soul? It means to take that leap of faith to declare Jesus Christ as Lord and to surrender to his lordship over your life, to give your life to him, to surrender to him. 
And my question for you in this moment, even as I read this passage, is are you, have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time in your life where you surrendered your life to Jesus, where you asked him to save you, where you by faith accepted him into your life and you declared your faith and your allegiance to Jesus, accepting him and receiving his spirit? All I know about, this, about salvation is this. If you have Jesus, if you have experienced Jesus, then you know that you know that you know that you know. There's a confidence in your heart because you have had an encounter with Jesus that changed your life and changed you on the inside. This is where Peter's describing this salvation of our soul. How does that work? How does it work, the salvation of one's soul? Well, from what we understand in the scriptures, uh, there's really two parts of a person. There's, there's body and there's spirit. There's body and there's soul. That's the two compartments that we have uh, from scripture. And, and really, they're, they're opposites in some ways. They're working together, but the body is the external. The body is the temporal. It's not made to last forever. In fact, uh, if you're you know, like me, a little bit long of tooth, you know your body is wearing out. Okay? I, I realized that about mile 13 or 14 yesterday, uh, my body is slowing down. Time and gravity are not our friends, friends. All right? So when those things happen and we understand our, our body is, is breaking down, that, that is an external housing, if you will. Your body is an external housing for the internal, eternal part of you, which is your soul. The outside is going to go away, but there is a part of you, there's a part of you that will live forever. That is the eternal spiritual part of you in your soul. Peter describes this as the salvation of our soul. And if Jesus doesn't come back first, we all are going to die. Now, that's not a very pleasant thought, but it's a necessary thought at this moment because one day, if the Lord tarries, your body is going to wear out and you will take your last breath. And there, at that moment, your soul leaves and your soul spends eternity somewhere. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. In fact, I want you to look around you for a minute and think about this for a minute. This is like one of those kind of moments to think. A hundred years from now, guaranteed, every one of us are going to be dead. Jesus doesn't come back first. Every one of us are going to be dead 100 years from now. I, I did this little exercise uh, this weekend. I, I was preparing this, and I thought about old East Pickens, where I grew up, on, how, on 158 Woodrow Street. And literally, I can, I can close my eyes and visualize that sanctuary, and I can remember the faces of people that would sit in the three different sections of that church building. And as I began to catalog and think through where all the people used to sit and everything, I began to realize how many of them are gone how many of them from my childhood have, have passed away? And even as I think about that, the question has to, you have to ask yourself is, where are they now? Well, it depends on where they were with the Lord. But if we know what we know and someone has trusted in Jesus Christ, when your time is up, where do you go? Where does your soul go? Where the scriptures say there's one of two places that our soul can go, even to heaven or to hell. By placing your faith in Christ, you set yourself on that eternal trajectory of your soul to be with him, be with God, your creator, in heaven forever. To not put your faith in Jesus or to reject Jesus sets your trajectory uh, away from Jesus from that point, from the time of your death. You will now go into eternity separated from Jesus. And that ultimate separation from the Lord is what we refer to as hell or eternity in hell. And I want you to really think through your life right now. Where is the trajectory of your life headed? Has there ever been a time that you trusted in Jesus Christ and surrendered to him and the trajectory of your life into eternity is headed toward heaven as opposed to headed toward hell? 
The wonderful truth is that as we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that faith propels us into the future, into an eternal reality to be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ forever. And if you have not decided to do that yet, what are you waiting for? Because today, this very day, you can anchor your faith in Jesus Christ and you can have salvation in your soul, not just for today, but for the trajectory of your the eternity of your life into the future, the salvation of your soul that is based upon your faith in Jesus Christ, the promised one. Now go back to the passage here, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 through 12 here. And Peter here is trying to help his, the recipients of this letter to comprehend that, that Jesus had to go through some things. Jesus had to face some suffering on this side, on, the, on this earth. And, and that suffering resulted in a glorious, a glorious thing for us that he, he actually gives us. But that also means we might have to go through some suffering as well, which might result in the same glory. And so he's trying to build a case here for Jesus and what Jesus had to endure. And as he's building a case here for that, he's actually building a case for our confidence and authority in the scriptures, which I think is a beautiful thing here. Jesus is the promised one. That's point number two. Jesus is the promised one. Look at verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Now remember... Peter is speaking to first century Christians. The prophets are the Old Testament prophets. They didn't have the New Testament. It was still being written. It was still being lived out. So all they had, the reference they had was the Old Testament and these Old Testament prophets. And he says that they spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them. This is really cool. The Spirit of Christ was in these Old Testament prophets. He, they, he was inspiring them. Uh, he was motivating them. He was helping them to see these things so that when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That is a tongue twister in the original language. And as he's describing it here, he's like, look, the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. Now, it's cool here because he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. By the way, they're one and the same, the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Christ. They're all the third person of the, of the Trinity, okay? But this picture here was that, was that they were evidenced. The Holy Spirit was speaking through them, inspiring them to give proofs of who Jesus would be and what Jesus would have to go through. In verses 11 and 12, he's talking about how that actually happened, that there's this insight here into the authority of the Bible that you and I are even reading out of this morning. The entire Bible, by the way, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, or as Peter describes him as, the Spirit of Christ. How does that work? How does it work that we actually see the, the, the Bible as, an, as a one work, but that's inspired by the Holy Spirit? Now, remember, again, all that Peter is referring to now is the Old Testament. He Make some reference to, to Paul's writings in his second letter in 2 Peter. But here he's reminding them, the believers, that the Spirit uh, guided the process of writing all the, the prophecies that were given about Jesus. And those prophecies uh, were about the suffering. And we'll get there in just a second. But as I, as I say that, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are people in this room that might have some of the same questions that, that I've had in the past. For example, how can I trust this Bible? How can I trust that what I have here, because I didn't see somebody write it. I was told me this is God's word. How, do, how can I know that I can trust this as authoritative and as the word of God? Well, it's a valid question, and, 
And it's hard because this is an old book, and we, you know, we, we have its origins, we have understandings of its origins. But I want you to think of this for just a moment. The Bible is a book, but it's actually a book of books. Did you know that? The Bible is actually comprised of 66 different books. Those 66 different books were written over a process of 1,500 years. That's a millennia and a half. They were written by 40 different authors in three different languages, this Bible. And so what's crazy is even though it was written by so many people across so many eras of time, by so many different people, there is a unified story of God and his people, including his eventual plan to send Jesus to save the world through him. And so the Apostle Peter here is giving you some insight as to how this amazing book came about and how it tells one amazing story, and that is this, the Holy Spirit inspired this book. The Holy Spirit moved through the writers of this book, through the Old Testament prophets here, to give them a glimpse of what was to come, and that glimpse was a glimpse of Jesus in his suffering that brought about glory. Now, in the Bible, as we talked about, it's written by 40 different authors, but this is a beautiful thing. There's 40 different authors, but there's one distinct voice. And this, if you spend time in the scriptures, you'll see that. It'll be confirmed for you that God is speaking through his word because it was inspired by his Holy Spirit. There are a couple other verses I would give you to bolster this confidence in the Bible's authority. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, Paul writes, All scripture is God-breathed. I love that imagery. It's the same kind of picture of when God leaned over Adam before he took form, and he says he breathed his spirit into Adam. It's the same sense that scripture is breathed. It was God-breathed into those who were writing it, and it's useful for all these things that, that Paul described therein. In 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Peter, in the next book over from 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, Peter gives a little bit more insight here. Listen to Peter's description here in his second letter, in verses 20 through 21. Above all, he said, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this, this uh, verb of them, them being carried along is actually a mariner's term describing the sails that are, that are put out on the, on the boat, on the ship, and the wind is carrying that boat along. The wind is pushing those sails and propelling that boat forward. Here, Peter is saying that God is pushing it along. God is inspiring, and God is giving them the very words to say. A little bit later in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter gives some commentary, actually, about his contemporary Paul and what he was writing, some of his letters that they were already had access to. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you, wow, with the wisdom that God gave him. If we were to compile all those passages together, we would see this about Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is inspired. God inspired the writers and gave them exactly what to say and how to say it. And the scriptures don't emanate from some kind of human ingenuity or ideas. The writers of these books were actually instruments of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter himself, as he's writing this letter, is being used by the Holy Spirit because it's included also in our scriptures. And so as they were carried along, as we're told, by, like wind in the sails, they were given wisdom from God as they're writing. And so we hold in our hands the very history, the very thoughts, the very actions, and the words of God. How incredible is that? And, and as, we, as we hold this in our hands and as we spend time in this, God speaks through his word. 
He speaks through his word to the people in their time. He speaks to us now in our time. Verse 12 tells us that these writers in the Old Testament, says in verse 12, it was revealed to them, this is 1 Peter 1 again, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving serving themselves, but you, speaking of Peter's contemporaries, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, God's word speaks to uh, the, the time of when the prophets wrote, it was something, a word for them. And think about this. Peter's saying, this, guys, is for you now, what they wrote in the Old Testament. And I would take it a step further to say, now God has a word for us, not just in the Old Testament contemporaries, not just in Peter's time, but now for us, 2,000 years later, God still speaks through his word. God has a word for us now in our time. And God's word speaks to every generation to meet his purposes in that cultural moment. And I'm so thankful for the word. Anybody else thankful for the word? It's a wonderful proof that Peter gives us here, and this bolsters, I pray it bolsters your confidence in the Bible. Now, going back to the passage, Peter's saying, yes, the Old Testament prophets, they they told us through the inspiration of, of the Spirit of Christ what Jesus would have to go through. And it's interesting here because, you know, Jesus was expected, the Messiah was expected, he was promised, but Jesus didn't show up quite like they were expecting the Messiah to show up. In fact, They were expecting a conquering king to come riding in on a white horse, and Jesus presented himself more like a suffering servant. We have the depiction of how Jesus was treated, how he was rejected by his own people, how he was abused, how he was executed on the cross. And Peter says, look, when you look back at the Old Testament prophets, it tells us that. The the prophets were trying to show us how Jesus would be treated, and that treatment included suffering as an inspiration for us, and really... I think as a framework to inspire us to think through how we might handle difficulties, how we might handle hardships as a framework for us as we see how Jesus treated his suffering. Now, before we get there, I want to give you some examples of the Old Testament. Now, again, uh, one of my favorite uh, series we did a couple of of months ago, maybe last year, was this uh, series called Proof, where we look back in the Old Testament and we saw these what I call Easter eggs, you know, of, of these, these pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, two of them I'm going to revisit for just a moment. And I want you, as you hear them, to, to see them as direct, it's, just, it's irrefutable pictures of Jesus, many times written centuries before Jesus even walked on the earth. Here's two examples. Psalm 22 is probably the most famous example of this. And it's actually written by, by David, by the psalmist. And it's a picture of first person of Jesus hanging on the cross, literally centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth. Listen to this, this depiction here. These, just these few verses here. It describes Jesus to a T. It says, and again, this describes his suffering. Verse 14 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My, my heart is turned to wax and is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. That was me on mile 14 yesterday. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Listen to this. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It It is as if the writer here is standing in that place, seated in that place, and looking down and seeing Jesus hanging on the cross. It's irrefutable. In Isaiah 53, in the same sense, this was written 400 years before Jesus describes Jesus in this way. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. It's verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53. 
yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Listen to this, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I read both of those to show you this depiction of the Old Testament prophets who were saying, the Messiah will come, but the Messiah will suffer. The Messiah will be broken. He will have to be broken. But listen, but it's by his brokenness, it's by his suffering, it's by his wounds that you will be healed. There is a good that comes out of the brokenness. There's a good that comes out of the suffering. And it was predicted by these Old Testament prophets many centuries before Jesus even came. And the sad reality is that these depictions were given to God's chosen people, and yet many of them, most of the Jews, missed out on Jesus altogether. Again, he didn't come like a king like they thought. He came as a suffering servant, lowly and humble. Now, to be fair, Jesus is both king and suffering servant. But listen, his suffering brought about his glory. This is what we're told in verse 11. Go back to verse 11. As Jesus is suffering on the cross, why why did Jesus suffer on the cross? For, For our sake, to take our place, to stand in our place and to take our sin upon him. Listen to this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Trying to, this is talking about the prophets again. They're trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. Listen, when he predicted, the Spirit's predicting through the Old Testament prophets, the sufferings, look at this last little phrase here of verse 11, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Ooh, there's a connection here. See, Peter's trying to draw it in. Jesus had to go through a lot of suffering, y'all. Jesus had to face a lot of hardship. Jesus had to face a lot of pain on the cross. He had to face a lot of rejection as he walked on the face of the earth. But that suffering that Jesus had to go through resulted in a glory, listen, a glorious result that is passed down to you and to I. Suffering results in glories. You have sufferings that result in the glories that would follow. And this is the third point. No cross, no crown. In other words, We don't get to experience the victorious glory of heaven and being with Christ forever unless Jesus suffered like he did. And those sufferings led to the glories that would follow. Again, I remind you uh, from Isaiah 53, verse 5 again, where he says, He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were, were healed. The suffering of Jesus resulted in our glory because of what he did for us. And part of Jesus' redemptive work included suffering. And I believe, uh, as we think through this, this gives us really a framework for how to understand suffering and how that is connected to the glory. Because, listen, uh, Jesus went through what he had to go through so that we could enjoy what we get to enjoy in the future. And suffering and salvation are connected together. No suffering, no glories. And there's a parallel to note here, okay? Like I said, your, your, your time on this earth, okay, you're, you're going to have suffering. You will experience suffering in this earth like we talked about last week. But if, Je- listen, if Jesus himself wasn't spared from the suffering of the world, then surely his, his followers should expect it too. And so as I'm following after Christ, Christ is my example. I have to understand, I may have to endure suffering and hardships on my way to glory. And they may even be tied together. How do I see that? Well, You don't get resurrection without death. You don't get healings without disease. You you don't get the crown without the cross. You don't get glories without suffering. And so suffering actually brings about the glory. It actually highlights the glory. And we have to endure whatever we have to endure on this side of eternity in this temporary housing, this temporary existence. And we have to make it through. And there's something that fuels us and helps us to walk through this time. 
Now, again, if Jesus serves as a, a framework, an example of how to walk through hardship and suffering in this life, how did Jesus do it? What, what fueled Jesus to, to go through what he went through? Well, to find that answer, I want to refer you to Hebrews chapter 12. At the end of verse 1 of chapter 12, 1 through 3. And I think you'll see how Jesus did it and why he did it. Listen to this from Hebrews 12 at the end of verse 1 through 3. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. So we're looking at Jesus, but look at verse at the middle of verse 2 here. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Did you hear that? In other words, Jesus had something in the future. There was joy in the future. And Jesus endured whatever he had to, to endure. He had to walk through the cross, scorning the shame, because there was something awaiting him in the future. He knew how it was going to end. He went through the cross. He went through the hardship of the cross, knowing that there was joy at the other end of that glory. That he had to suffer at this moment, but there was something better, something greater, and there would be something accomplished through this that would give him great joy. What is that source of great joy for Jesus? Our salvation, our reconciliation, a, 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 a future, a, an eternal reward where we get to commune with our Savior and our Lord. And Jesus, there is joy for him as he begins to, to walk through that time, knowing that one day he'll return to sit down at the right hand of the Father in his rightful place. And there everything will be made right. Sin will be atoned for, and we get to be with him forever. And that gives Jesus great joy as he walked through whatever he had to walk through. So what I'm telling you is... Jesus went through the suffering knowing that joy was coming. I believe that's the same inspiration for you and I as we walk through. This is a framework for us as we walk through whatever suffering, whatever hardship we have to face, knowing that there is a joy awaiting us that Jesus has given us. And so we walk through whatever we've got to walk through knowing that the joy is coming ahead. And this is why we have to do, as it says in verse 13, to set our hope. Listen, this future vision fuels our capacity just as it fueled Jesus' capacity to go to the cross. This future vision compels us. It gives us the fuel that we need to face whatever we're facing, to keep pedaling up that hill, knowing that the refreshment comes at the very end of that process, this glorious finish line that is waiting for us. And so we set our hope and our mind there. Go back to verse 13 of 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, Peter writes, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. There's where I get that point for. Set your hope on the grace to be brought. This is a future reality. To be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I, listen, our hope is set in a future. Our hope is set in a reward. Our hope is set when Jesus Christ is revealed and all things are made right. Our time on earth is done and we get to be with him forever. This is a promise Blessed hope and whatever, listen, whatever you have to walk through right now, whatever hardships you have to endure, whatever cross you have to bear, the joy is set before you just like that joy was set before Jesus. And you can choose right now to set your hope, not on the now, not on the here, but on the hereafter, knowing that one day you get to go to heaven and you get to be with your creator forever and ever. And all this will be made right. That is where you set your hope. The promised future, we focus ourselves upon the future, either Jesus comes back or we get to meet him in the air. Whichever way, we win, folks. We win when we get to be with Jesus. And that's a bright future ahead. And it helps you. Listen, it fuels you to walk through whatever you've got to walk through now as you set your hope and set your sights on a future with Jesus. 
Let's stop for a minute. I have to catch my breath for one, but let's, can we linger here for just a minute? I don't want to just skim over eternity. Let's, talk, let's, let's stop for just a minute, okay? Think about eternity for a minute. Try to fathom eternity. You'll blow a fuse pretty quick, like forever and ever and ever. Like however long you live on this earth, it's just the beginning of eternity. When we talk about 100 years from now, 100 years from now is the beginning of eternity. And you have a home awaiting you where you get to spend the rest of eternity future with your creator God in heaven if you are born again and have trusted in Jesus Christ. And, and just ruminate with me for a minute of how heaven is going to be so perfect as Jesus makes all things whole. Now, I hate to say this, but it's going to put some of you guys out of business, okay? There's not going to be need any, for any courts or police officers or lawyers. I'm sorry, guys, those of you who work in that system, because there won't be any strife and conflict to be resolved in heaven. Sorry, everybody in the medical community, no doctors, no nurses, no doctor bills, amen? Uh, because there won't be any sickness or disease in heaven. Hey, there's no more funeral homes in heaven, amen? No more funerals. Because death has been defeated. Hey, kids and teachers, no more school. There's nothing else to know. Because you will know everything you have needed to know. You will see everything that you need to see. And you will be fully known as you know him. And so there's no more need for school. And we have that eternal perspective. Listen, when you have that, listen, when you have that awaiting you, it helps you. When you get a vision for that and set your hope there, it helps you walk through whatever strife, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty is in front of you. Why? Because forever is in front of you. And that future holds your life with Christ now in light of eternity. That's why he says in verse 13, therefore, with your minds, in other words, you've got to put your mind there with minds that are alert. By the way, that word alert is a funny word. It comes from the word picture of, you know, you two wear the togas, like in that time, they, the men wore kind of like dresses, you know. And if you're going to run a race in a toga, they called it girding up your loins, but you had to grab your, the bottom of your dress and hold it up here, like if you're a dude, holding your the bottom of your hem, because you didn't want to like flap around or have a long dress while you're running, because you'd trip and fall over your, your, your toga. And so he says, you've got to gird up your loins, man. You've got to be ready. You've got to be ready, because Jesus is coming back, and you've got to be prepared for this, because you've got to be ready to move. You've got to be of a sober mind. You've got to have a right, collected spirit, uh, so that you'll be ready when Jesus comes back. So here's the last point. And there's these last four verses here. There's some subpoints within this, but Peter's saying... <clears throat> If heaven is real, okay, if heaven is real and heaven is a reality and heaven is coming soon, then there's some ways you got to think about and some ways you got to live. In other words, I believe there's some things you got to reconcile with today. If heaven is where you're going to set your hope, then it's going to change how you view your circumstances around you now. It's going to change how you think about what's happening with the future and even in this moment if heaven is real and coming soon. And this is point number five. You've got to live this expectant life. Expect it. Be ready. Be alert. Be sober. Be hopeful of Jesus coming back soon. If heaven is real and coming soon, the first thing we're told in verse 14 is, don't conform to your old ways of life. Peter's like, listen, if, if Jesus is coming back, you need to be careful. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had, speaking of past tense, you had when you lived in ignorance. Peter says, don't you go back. If Jesus is coming back soon, 
you don't need to go back to your old ways. Obviously, Peter was seeing a pattern here of people who said they had accepted Christ, but they were going back to their old pagan ways. And Peter was concerned enough to say, listen, when Jesus comes back, you don't want to be living the way you used to live. By the way, if you're a believer, every saint has a past. Amen? Okay, we've been reconciled in that. Every, every saint has a sinful past. And he's saying, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that past. In fact, my prayer is that God might use this to get somebody's attention today who needs to clean up their act because Jesus could come back today. Jesus could come back tomorrow. And are you living in such a way that you want to be living when Jesus comes back? What do you want to be caught doing when Jesus comes back? You ever thought about that? What do you want to be doing? What work do you want to be a part of? What actions, what do you want to be a part of when Jesus comes back? And so it's a call, it's a clarion call not to go back. Because here's the thing, you can't live like hell and be on the road to heaven. You've got to make sure things are right when he comes back. And he says here, for Christians in particular, there was a time that you lived, but you did so in ignorance. Okay? Christians, we know better now. We're not, that's not our excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse for us. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the instruction of the word. We have the community of accountability. And for us to go back to the old ways is not an ignorant move. It's a willful move. And be careful, Peter's saying. Don't go back in the ignorance of that time. Secondly, if heaven is real and coming soon, we've got to strive for holiness. Look at verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, this is Jesus, uh, the Lord's words here from Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 19. Be holy because I am holy. In other words, strive for holiness as you are waiting for Jesus to come back or for eternity to come. Quick question, is it possible to attain holiness? To have pure motives, pure thoughts, pure actions. Well, let me say it this way, okay? Because of what Jesus Christ did for you on your behalf, you, he paid the price for you, he died for your sins, it is now, now you are standing before God positionally holy. When the Lord looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He sees that your sins have been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so you are now in a place of positional holiness. It's from that place of positional holiness now that the rest of your life, as you are walking with God, as you are spending time in his word, as you're spending time in Christian community, that hopefully you are spiritually maturing in your life. And you are, listen, you've already been declared righteous positionally because of what Jesus did for you. The rest of your life is now matching up and trying to attain to that which you've already been declared by the Lord. And so as you grow in spiritual maturity, you will uh, prepare and you will grow into that which God has for you. This is a, a fancy word called sanctification. Throughout the process of your life and through the influence of Jesus, you will grow more in your holiness. I mean, I've been a Christian now for 40 years. I got saved when I was seven years old. I would hope that over these last 40 years, in spending time in the Word, spending time with Jesus, that I'm closer to, I'm not holy, okay, I haven't reached that, but I'm telling you what, I'm growing, I'm maturing into that. And one day it'll all be made right as I come to God in a new glorified body. I hope I'm more like Jesus. In fact, I will say this, holiness is the target, and I know I'm going to miss the mark, but if I aim for nothing, I'm going to hit it every time. And so I've got to aim for holiness. Why? Because God is holy, and Jesus is holy. That's why we're told here, be holy because I'm holy. It's a strong standard. I mean, who wants to be more like Jesus? Anybody in here want to be more like Jesus? That means you've got to grow more in your holiness. You want to be more like Jesus. Because Jesus is holy. Does that mean you become perfect? 
it means that you're taking steps in spiritual maturity. You're setting some things down. You're picking some things up. You're, taking, you're getting rid of some things out of your life. Why? So that you are growing in your holiness and you are maturing in your, in your spiritual life. And so what needs to go right now in this moment, okay? What needs to be repented of? What needs to be laid down for you to take one more step toward holiness in your life so that you might honor God more and be spiritually more mature? What's got to change in your life right now so that you're more ready for Jesus to come back or to be with him in eternity? If heaven is real and coming soon, you need to understand that you're going to be accountable for what you did here on this earth. Go to verse 17. Peter writes, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Stop. What's he say? God's going to judge every person's work? I thought we're not saved by works. You're right. We're not saved by works, but we're saved to do works. We're saved. Again, Jesus saves us of our sin, but we're going to be held. Listen, you are going to be held accountable for what you did for the Lord here on this earth. And this scripture tells us that the Father is going to judge each person's work, and he's going to do so impartially. In other words, we're each going to stand before God and give an account of our stewardship, the stewardship of our life. I use this word a lot when we talk about our four values of worship, connect, serve, and share. And even as we talk about share, we talk about God has given you resources, God has given you a testimony, God has given you abilities, and you can't just waste that on you and yourself and your little kingdom. That you've been given these things, God has done a work in your life, not just for you, but for you to leverage that for somebody else. And you're going to be held accountable for that because God is going to work in and through you so that you can be his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece to the world. And again, this idea here that, that I've got to, I'm going to be held accountable for what I do with my life. I'm, think about this. Uh, listen to this from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. In here, Paul is actually describing the Bema seat or the, the judgment seat of Christ in heaven after we get to be with him. So, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is not about your salvation. Your salvation is secure in Christ. But what you do after your salvation, the things that you do for Jesus and for his kingdom, what you did, what you didn't do, you will be held accountable. And that is a sobering thought. So think about this for a minute. What do you want to be said and judged about your life and how you leveraged it for the kingdom and for Christ? I mean, I talked about us all being dead near 100 years from now. I mean, in reality, listen, what really matters 100 years from now? What really matters, what's the most important, a hundred years from now, the things that we spend our time and energies on, what will it matter a hundred years from now? I'm going to have to give an account one day of all the movies. How many hours of movies have I watched? How much money have I wasted on my whims? How many hours have I spent on social media? How many friends did I pass by and refuse to share the gospel with? I'm going to have to give an account of that, and so will you. As it describes here, this idea of rewards in heaven and I need to think about that and consider that if heaven is real and coming, then I'm going to be held accountable for what I did for him in this world. Last thing, I promise. <laughs> if heaven is real and coming soon, Peter says, don't consider this your home. Don't consider earth your home. Go back again to verse 17, the end of verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Peter says, live out your time as foreigners here. So like you're in a place, but you're foreign from it. 
you're in this earth, but you're foreign from it. You, you're a foreigner here. And he says, you've got to live here in reverent fear. Now, this idea of, of a foreigner, this, it's interesting because it has this concept of this is not where I'm supposed to really you know, put my time and energy and effort because I'm just passing through, you know. I'm leaving tomorrow, and I'm going to Louisville for a couple of days for a conference, and I'm going to be staying in a hotel. Do I pack up everything in my house and take it to Louisville in my truck? Why? Because I ain't staying there long. I'm just there for like two or three nights. I'm not going to take everything out of my house, all of my living room furniture, all my pots, all my pens, all my everything. I'm going to take the bare necessities. Why? Because I'm not going to be in Louisville long. I'm coming back. I'm coming back home. Can't get there quick enough many times. I'm just at the end of a moment like that. And then, listen, in the same sense, okay, as you think about this world, you are a foreigner, he says, passing through a strange land. And I'm just going to put it this way. Some of us are way too comfortable with this world. When we should be passing through, we are putting down deep roots and deep values here. When really, listen, our home is in eternity with the Lord. And whether you get 60 years or 100 years or 110 years, it's just a mere breath compared to all of eternity when heaven is your home. And so in light of that, we set our hope, we set our heart, we set our mind in the future in heaven with God. And if that's true, if heaven's soon and real and coming soon, then it changes how you view this moment. It changes how you view the hardship that you're walking through. Paul says later, these things are light and momentary troubles compared to the glory that is awaiting us. I mean, it puts it in perspective. Whatever, Listen, whatever I've got to walk through, whatever difficulty I'm facing in this moment, this isn't home anyway. I'm passing through, and I've set my hope in the future in heaven, and whatever I have to walk through here, I'm going to do like Jesus. I'm going to let the joy set before me be my motivation, be my hope, and I'll walk through whatever i got to walk through here knowing and trusting that whatever is awaiting me is better than where I am right now. There gets to be a place and a time in heaven where all is made right. And whatever crud I got to walk through now reminds me of how much better that's going to be one day. So having said that, number one, are you ready for eternity? Are, do you know that you know that you know? Do you have a confidence in your heart that you have surrendered to Jesus Christ and he is your Savior and your Lord. If not, then make that right today. Commit yourself to Christ. Again, next week we're baptizing. Maybe you need to take that important step and be public with your faith and declare your faith in Christ publicly. Maybe you're walking through a time right now and you've, as, you know, we've sang this song about I will look up. And you're, if you're honest, you've just been looking down and you've been looking around. And as, as Caleb described, you've been trying to just so caught up in the muck of this that you haven't gotten a greater vision even in the midst of whatever you're facing. And my, my prayer for you is that, that you'll commit today, that run, you're going to run into your future, whatever it holds, knowing that heaven, listen, heaven is the finish line. Your Savior is the finish line, and that propels you and gives you a hope and a power through whatever you're having to face now. And lastly, are you living like heaven is real? And are you living like it's coming soon? If heaven is real and heaven is coming soon, how does that change what you do today or what you do tomorrow? Your priorities, what you talk about, where you invest your life, where you invest your resources, where you put your time and attention, how you leverage the relationships around you. If heaven is real and coming soon, it would change how you see today and tomorrow. And I want you to prayerfully think about what needs to change. What needs to change tomorrow when I go back to my workplace? What needs to change 
students as you're going back into your school? What needs to change about how you carry yourself? What needs to change about relationships around you right now? Because heaven is real and heaven is coming soon. Christian, fix your eyes on the finish line. Just like me on that bicycle. Three miles to the finish line, baby. That was my heart. My, I was focused on the future and what I had. And that thing that was in front of me propelled me forward. My prayer is in the same way. It might be that same for you in your life.